Welcome to the Innovate Podcast. I'm David Castro, an Ashoka Fellow and CEO of the Institute for Leadership, Education, Advancement, and Development. Innovate features dialogue with social entrepreneurs, visionaries, and leading scholars engaged in transformative thinking, action, and creative collaboration. Innovate is produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal. The program is underwritten by Arch Street Press, publisher for the creative, collaborative community. Find out more on the web at archstreetpress.org. Today, our guest is Angel Cabrera, the visionary president of George Mason University and the co-author of the book, Being Global, How to Think, Act, and Lead in a Transformed World. During his career in higher education, before becoming president of George Mason, Angel led the IE Business School in Madrid and also served as the 11th president of the Thunderbird School of Global Management in Arizona. Thunderbird has been recognized as the world's leading graduate school for international management, and the Financial Times has ranked the IE Business School as among the top 10 business schools in the world. Angel earned his bachelor and master's degrees in engineering from the University Politecnica in Madrid, Spain's premier engineering university. He also has earned a master's and PhD in psychology and cognitive science from the Georgia Institute of Technology, which he attended as a Fulbright scholar. Angel has received numerous awards for his expertise and know-how in international business and higher education. Too many to list completely, but here are a few. In 2002, the World Economic Forum named him Global Leader for Tomorrow and Young Global Leader in 2005. The World Economic Forum also appointed him chairman of the Global Agenda Council for Promoting Entrepreneurship, and the Aspen Institute has recognized him as a Henry Crown Fellow. Angel's views on, and insights on global leadership, higher education, corporate citizenship have been featured in The Economist, Time, CNN, CNBC, Forbes, and the International Herald Tribune, and The New York Times. Angel, it's a great honor. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you for having me. Let's begin at the beginning. I know that you grew up uh, in the outskirts of Madrid and completed your undergraduate studies in engineering there, and then eventually came to the United States and studied psychology as a Fulbright Scholar. And I'm wondering about your early life, your family, and your life in Spain. Can you tell us where your interest in pursuing a career in academia and also, and also you know, in your interest in international business and management, where do you find the roots of that in your early life? Um, well, great, great question. I, I guess like many of us, uh, we, we are inspired by, by people we, we live with and, uh, and admire. Um, I, I grew up, as you mentioned, in a very normal middle-class neighborhood uh, right outside of Madrid. And, um, and in, I spent my summers going to my mother's hometown, a tiny little village in a very poor, beautiful, but very poor area of Spain where my uh, granddad had been the teacher. Uh, the teacher, because the the town only had one one teacher, and I I still remember, you know, carelessly uh, playing and 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 walking uh, through the mountains in that town. And every time any any 
any local would stop me. I was instructed to say, and I was asked, "Who are you?" I, I was instructed to say, "I'm I am I am the grandson of uh, Thesario, the teacher." And it was always amazing to see people's reactions uh, to to my granddad and what he had meant in their lives and in the life of the of the of the town. So in in a way, I always grew up looking up to teachers and educators as 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 this amazing thing that one could do uh, in life. So I think that that has always marked me. I've always, in a way, uh, aspired to be a teacher like Granddad. And, and the other, perhaps the other source of influence that I've had was my own father was a small business owner um, in, uh, in Madrid. And so I have seen sort of the the power of of uh, of the enterprise to to create value, to create livelihood for a family, to create jobs. I've seen what what a small business can do in a in a community. And so in in a way, I guess my my own introspection, I'd probably trace my interest back to those two inspirations. It's amazing how people in our immediate families can really affect our lives, and I think that that's a good example of it. I wanted to ask you about relocating to the United States. And obviously, you spent a lot of time thinking about uh, how global experiences shape the way we see the world. And I'd like you to talk, if you can, about that. What was it like coming to the United States from Spain? And how did it change your view of the world that you live in? Well, I, I think it's no exaggeration to say that um, that I became a different person uh, as a consequence of that. And even, even before that, what's interesting is my, my parents did not speak any language other than Spanish and had never traveled internationally. And, and yet, for some reason, they always encouraged my, me and, and, and my brothers to, to learn languages, and they wanted us to somehow have uh, access to the world they had never in a way felt they, they had access to. So, and I don't know where they got that motivation, but, but they were part of that. Uh, so, so growing up, I, um, you know, I, I learned French and in uh, German, in fact, English was my my worst uh, language. But uh-huh. um, but I always had this dream that I I wanted to go and 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 live outside and and sort of experience the world. I don't know where that came from, but I but I did. And um, so when I finished my my undergraduate and my sort of my master's in engineering in in Spain, I, I knew I I was going to go outside. I, I had an option uh, to go to Germany, and and then I got this full break to come to the U.S. and I uh, decided, hey, I've been to Germany, I've never experienced the U.S., so off I go. And um, and just going through that that journey of of being. Uh, being the foreigner, right, and and not for a summer trip, but actually live in a place where you are the newcomer, right? where you are uh, the, the the person who's different, who's struggling to understand how a culture works. Um, it's a profound uh, learning journey for for anyone. Um, I, I I sometimes kid, although it's pretty. <laughs> real and serious, which is I, 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 uh, when I arrived to tech, I, my, my first inclination was to find people who spoke Spanish. I, I was very good friends with lots of uh, Hispanics who were grad students at, at Georgia Tech. And at some point, I made the conscious decision to say, I have to get to know my American classmates. Sure. I didn't come all the way here to not understand this culture. So I, I, uh, I did such a good job of getting to know my American classmates and, and getting to understand their culture that I ended up falling in love with one of them and marrying her, ah, right. <laughs> my wife. So, so that's kind of my, uh, my, my process of uh, acculturation to, uh, 
to American uh, culture. That's a great story. That's a great story. I um I wanted to ask you because I think it's very rare to capture this. Which and the question is sort of what's the mo- what was the most surprising thing to you about the United States? The the difference between what you might have read about it and and uh, seen about it in media, and then you you arrive and you experience it directly, living in the culture. What what was the most surprising element of that? That. Well, you know what, what's what's interesting. Uh, the the United States is the most um, the, the the most influential culture in the world. So if you if you grow up outside of the United States, you grow up watching American movies, American TV shows, uh, reading American authors, and listening to American music. There is no way around it. Um, so everybody, everybody. So you, not every American would have a stereotype of a Spaniard or of a Hungarian, if you will. Oh, right. That every everybody in the world will have a stereotype about America. Yeah. Of course, like all stereotypes, have some elements that may approach the truth, and many elements that are absolute uh, terrible generalizations. But everybody. So, so when I came here, honestly, I, I landed uh, in Seattle. That was my first stop, and I had these images that I had developed from watching those movies of, you know, the big cars and the uh, the architecture. And so, so the first impression landing in in Seattle is, wow, this looks like a movie. <laughs> this looks like a movie. The, the streets, the cars, the signs. I mean, it's like I've been watching this all my life and it is real. Uh, then, of course, uh, as it is the case, I think anytime you explore a different culture, you, you start appreciating the, the richness, the uniqueness, and mo- most importantly, the diversity of that culture and, and, and realize that, that most of your stereotypes were just silly generalizations. Um, and, and then, honestly, uh, you, you've reached a point where, where you go from, you know, from, from just basic stereotypes to a richer view of a culture to one day realizing that we're not all that different after all. You know, that, that, that once you start digging through uh, sort of uh, very apparent cultural differences at the end of the day, we're all human beings and, and have the same desires and, and, and profound values and, and needs. That's an interesting theme that you also pick up in your book, this idea of diversity but convergence and how critical that is in being global. I wanted to ask you about this. Another thing that I think is interesting about you is your switch in your field of study. You know, you you, you come up in Madrid as an engineer and then you come here and you decide you want to uh, study psychology. And tell us about that. What prompted that interest? Yeah, I, you know, I, I guess I... I was always good in math and science, and I went to engineering school because that was the, I guess the the biggest challenge uh, that I could find in Spain, the toughest school. And and uh, soon into engineering school, I realized I I just don't think I have the, the mindset of an engineer. Academically, I I did fantastic, and you know that's why I got my Fulbright scholarship and all that. But but deep inside, I I was I was intellectually quite not satisfied by I, I and and I found in psychology a much more uh personal learning journey. I mean I started reading psychology for fun and and realized wow I mean everything you read, everything you learn, everything you study, every experiment is teaching something, teaching you something about yourself. So um when I was given the the Fulbright um because of my engineering background, I started exploring. Hey, would I? Would it be possible if I if I switched 
and uh, and I learned that yes, it was possible. But why in the world would I want to switch? And and many of the schools that I applied to, uh, um, that I said, can I do my graduate work in psychology? They said, why? You've never you know done any formal training in psychology, and and uh, the only place that would uh, that that actually took the risk of me was Georgia Tech because Georgia Tech obviously is an engineering school with a small psychology department that is surrounded by engineers. So they're the ones who say, well, we, we know engineers, we're fine. So they, they accepted me, and thanks to, to them, I was able to transition into into the world of uh, experimental psychology and cognitive science, which was absolutely, absolutely fascinating. That's great, and it's so great that you had the courage to go and say, well, listen, I, I have a passion for something else, and I'm going to pursue it. I think some of the great intellects of our time are people that have that are trained in more than one discipline, you know, and, and get broader instead of more siloed. Um, so can you tell us about, uh, you know, I'd like to sort of fast forward to Thunderbird, which is obviously uh, you've made such a big impact on that institution, and from there emerges this book that we're going to talk about, Being Global. And can you tell us about uh, your time in Thunderbird, what you learned there, how you sort of came to these ideas that are um, in being global, and, and just tell us a little bit about that part of the journey? Uh, sure. Uh, so and I'll just rewind one second to sure. right, right before, because I think it helps uh, maybe frame what I did at Thunderbird. I, I became a professor of organizational behavior um, in in Spain at um, IE Business School, and then I, I became the dean. And um, so I got into, at a very early age, I it was by a series of accidents, I was uh, dean of, uh, of uh, in my early 30s. And and I was I became quite um, disappointed by the dominant value system in uh, in business schools. Not not just in the school I was leading, but obviously as I interacted with other deans that got to know the field of business schools, I, I became quite disappointed by by sort of a dominant view of the world um, where m many business schools. Um, uh, had sort of oversimplified the, the social role of the enterprise as a sort of a pure economic play where a manager is just sort of this profit maximizer and that is all uh, this sort of absence of, of values and, and, and morality from, from the, uh, the, the great art of, of building a business. And, uh, and when, when the opportunity came up at, at Thunderbird, um, I think that the, the, the aspect of Thunderbird that attracted me the most is that I sensed that it was a business school that had a soul, that had a soul. Um, sometimes the school was not even uh, maybe very good at articulating what that was about. Um, but but he had something special, and the more I got to know Thunderbird, the more I I, I felt that um, Thunderbird attracts people uh, throughout its history who not only want to have a good career, but they tend to be very globally inclined. They want to get to learn uh, about the world, about other cultures, and because of that passion for other cultures, they tend to be to to have more of a concern about. Um, what happens around them and how actions of businesses impact the um, the communities they're a part of. Um, and, and I think that's what really captured me. Uh, I thought that, hey, this is a school where, where maybe I can um, – 
first of all, I, I find very well aligned with, with the things I, I believe in and that I'm passionate about, but also a place where I think I can make perhaps a, a, a contribution in, in further pushing that value system um, a, little, a little further. And I think a lot of those themes that you just mentioned in t- describing that transition to Thunderbird are really expressed in, in being global. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Greg Unruh, who's the you know the co-author there, and um, and how you conceived of being global, and maybe how uh, I'd love if you could talk about how perhaps being global is modeled in what you did at Thunderbird and what you of course have now brought with you to George Mason, and maybe that would be a way for us to begin to talk about that book. Yep. Um, yeah, uh, I think being global, I mean, it has a, a side of it that is very personal, but, but it is mostly shaped by, by, by Thunderbird and by, I guess it's my and Greg's um, sort of interpretation of, of, of Thunderbird as a community, as a value system, if you will. Greg um, had a, interestingly, we, we had a, uh, symmetric life experiences. I, I am the, the the Spaniard who came to the U.S. and <laughs> married an American. Uh, Greg uh, grew up in San Francisco, uh, also in middle class family, and ended up living in Spain and marrying a Spaniard. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, and uh, and and when I was the dean of uh, IE Business School, uh, in fact, I started off as a professor. He was a professor, and we became very close friends, even though we came from sort of uh, literally uh, the other end of the world from one another our our own life experiences sort of um, made us come very very close so we became quite uh, uh, close friends eventually when when i uh, accepted the job at thunderbird uh, and, and there was an opportunity uh to to for, we were looking for someone precisely with his profile so it was terrific to be able to to recruit him to come to thunderbird and uh, we both when we both arrived at thunderbird we felt um at home, and and then we realized that many many other people had had the similar experience. Many of the folks who land at Thunderbird are people who've spent their lives being different, different because they have this interest in exploring the world, or because their life uh, trajectories had been global, or they had taken them through different parts of the world. But in a way, you go from being the the person who's always different to all of a sudden being surrounded by people like you. It feels like you 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 your home finally, yeah. uh, and uh, and and so yeah, we we decided to write a book that that both for both of us I think was was um, was a little bit personal, but it, it was also trying to capture uh, the essence of what Thunderbird had produced, not just because of the interest that Thunderbird uh, in itself has, but because we thought in a way it could signal a valuable development path for many people beyond Thunderbird, given given how the world has become really a, an increasingly interconnected reality. What I love about the book, too, is that it really focuses on action. And for a lot of people, globalization is a concept. It's like an intellectual concept. But I love the way that in the book you have challenged readers to say, well, what does it mean to put this into practice? which is, I think, a, also a business approach because people in business are always trying to be, you know, to create value and they're always trying to say, how do these ideas apply? Whereas an academic may be more interested in just contemplating the ideas themselves. Right. Um, and uh, and I think that it's a wonderful, you know, nexus of those those things. And 
so I'd love to just take a little dive into some of the key ideas in the book and really encourage our listeners to go and get a copy. It, uh, I really enjoyed it. And um, so the, the, one of the uh, ideas is the idea of global mindset. And you, in the, in the beginning of the book, I think it's a well-worn expression, think globally, act, lo- act locally. And you really sort of call that out and say, hey, in the world that we live in now, that's not enough. We have to actually be global as well as local. And it's not enough to think to think uh, globally, we have to be able to, in some measure, act at that stage as well. And uh, so if you could talk a little bit about that, the global mindset. And if we can, I'd love to begin to shift into some of what you do in George Mason, and maybe you could talk about how you're bringing a global mindset to George Mason. Sure. Um, well, we first, I think that... Um, you know, as as uh, many businesses went went international in the perhaps in, in after the uh, the Second World War, um, the the concern or the the human resources concern of the time was how do we prepare people to last in a culture that is going to be different from them from their own? How do we uh, ensure that if we if I send you to run our business in Argentina, you don't come back in two months saying I cannot stand it at, at, with terrible culture shock and the like. So so there was a lot of emphasis in preparing people for for sort of a cult, cultural transitions and to try to understand as well the the ways of uh, of living in a, in a different location what we thought is you know oh that's good and interesting but but clearly insufficient i mean if if you think about the the organizations that are that are uh driving change and succeeding in today's world um, they're truly global organizations in, in, in across sectors. I mean, if you go to the business sector, obviously think of entities like, um, like, like Google or, or, uh, or even social media, uh, the Facebooks of the world, traders of the world, but you go to the automobile industry, or even if you go to the social, um, the social sector, uh, uh organizations like your know, room to read or even teach for America, which is going global. I mean, uh, you go sector by sector. In, in, in some of the most promising ideas and the most promising projects really are, are happening on a global on a global scale they're happening by combining resources people uh, organizations that exist in different cultural realities and, and that's where some of the biggest breakthroughs are happening by, by making those connections so it is not no longer a question of how do I help this person live in Argentina uh, for more than three months without getting into a terrible culture shock. It is it is about uh, helping people develop the skills to productively interact and collaborate and do productive and creative things with individuals and organizations from settings that are different from their own. You cannot possibly train anybody today to understand deeply the cultures of Argentina, Japan, Brazil, France, you know, Italy, Morocco. Um, so what we're talking about is is a different skill set. I mean, you, 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 how do you train someone to be able to to do that across cultures, if you will, not to specialize in one, but to actually be able to float across cultures and to bridge. To, to bridge culture, and that's and that is the notion of a global mindset. And we were delighted that to have a colleague at uh, 
at Thunderbird called Mansour Javidan, who had launched a, a whole research project to trying to decode what made a global mindset, and, and that's what we describe in the book. And and and, um, and back to to George Mason, what we're trying to figure out is. When I arrived here, we happened to have a provost to George Mason, Peter Stearns, um, who has written extensively about global education, who through his own journey um, had spent a lot of time trying to push the notions of, of global mindset in a large uh, public university. <laughs> so this is not a small uh, private school like Thunderbird where people are self-selecting who already are seeking that we're talking about a 34,000 student public university with many, many students who've never been outside of, uh, of the United States. How do you help them develop that mindset? And that is the big challenge we're, we're working on right now. So one of the things that's clear from thinking about this is that diversity is, is, is critical. And, and the way I kind of interpret it, it's, it's moving beyond this concept of diversity, which is around tolerance, which is sort of the low end of diversity, to a concept of thinking about diversity as really a, a tremendous resource and value add and, and the idea that it can be a, a, uh, a fuel for creativity um, and doing things that are very unique and, and add value. Um, so diversity is, 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 is part of that. And obviously, you know, I guess one of the things that you're doing at Mason is, is thinking about, you know, how do we have a very diverse population? I wanted to ask you also about the experiential element of this, because there's one thing about talking about it, but obviously when you get students out into diverse environments and into other cultures, and they have that visceral experience of being somewhere beyond their comfort zone, that's a powerful learning process. How did you, do, how did you approach that at Thunderbird, and how do you approach that at George Mason? I think, I think this is a movement in academia of thinking about you know, experiential learning in the academy. How do we do that? And I wonder if you could talk about that. Oh, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the the skill sets we're talking about, which actually goes beyond just skill sets, we're talking about attitudes and um, and, and, and and almost belief systems. Um, you can only develop them by practicing them. Um, there, there are aspects of a global mindset that have to do with academic learning. I mean, and we talk about that in the book. I mean, there are aspects that have to do with uh, learning facts about the world. So um, people with a, with a highly developed uh, global mindset, they may choose to read The Economist as opposed to read a local newspaper, or they may choose to read, uh, if they like literature, they may pick up um, um, work of uh, foreign writers because they, they want to uh, sort of look at the world from different realities. And that is very, very important, but it's not sufficient. You have to experience that diversity. You have to sit down. Working working uh, with people from different backgrounds um, is much harder than working with people from your own hometown. Um, you know, the people who would naturally share your sense of humor with whom you have uh, a myriad of, of, of shared cultural experiences. Um, we're wired in such way that when we deal with people who are different from ourselves, we start from a level of mistrust. That's, that's a natural reaction. You're different from me, therefore, even though I may not articulate it or may not accept it, may not verbalize it, you're different from me, therefore, I am somewhat suspicious about you. 
how do I overcome that? How do I develop a way to communicate with you? Not just a language, but how do I develop a set of shared meanings and understanding so I can effectively communicate with you and then so I can develop a trusting relationship so you and I can now collaborate and do something together. It is a very tough thing. You have to put yourself through that, through that process. Um, so in the case of Thunderbird, it's a little easier because first of all, you're bringing students from all over the world together to a location uh, in, in the middle of the desert, if you will, and then you structure the curriculum so you force people to even go to other parts of the world. In the case of George Mason, is, is we have one asset, but we then have lots of um, barriers, if you will. The big asset we have is the tremendous diversity in our campus, which is sort of an inherent uh, replica of, what, of, of the diversity of Northern Virginia. What we have against us is that because of the, 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 the nature of a student population, it's harder to, to have people who, who, who get to experience different parts of the world as part of their training. So we're trying to figure out how can we leverage more the diversity on campus, given the, the inherent cost difficulties of sending people around the world. Right, right. I would imagine that would be um, a challenge. The I want to ask you about the difference between Arizona and Washington. So George Mason, obviously a very top school, global distinction in you know, more than 200 academic fields. And being so close to Washington, D.C., uh, how, has, how is that an asset? Uh, and what do you, you know, can you talk a little bit about that and how that has maybe also changed the way you approach some of these issues? Has it changed it in terms of your transition from Thunderbird? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the, the, the Washington, D.C. area um, is a dream location. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, so my landing here is like a, like a kid in a candy store. Uh, first, I mean, just, just, the, just the diversity that you have at all levels. I mean, this is a place where uh, it's literally one of the most diverse uh, locations in the world. Um, in, here in Northern Virginia, we have you know, huge presence from um, Asian communities, especially Koreans, Middle Eastern, um, Hispanics, and, and that diversity permeates everything in society. It's not like you have sort of Hispanics doing menial jobs and so forth. You, you will find a CEO who's a Hispanic or, or, or who's Asian, or the diversity permeates everything in, in, in this society. It's really remarkable. And then on top of that, you lay probably the, the, the highest concentration in the, in the world of international organizations. I mean, this is the home of the, of the World Bank and the IMF and the Inter-American Development Bank and the largest number of, uh, of embassies in the world and a host of international organization headquarters and um, international economic development organizations and, and, and so on. So just the resources in this, in this region um, are absolutely just outstanding. And so that's uh, that's something that your leadership at Mason is directed towards really harvesting and, and, and leveraging all that for the benefit of uh, global learning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. So I wanted to ask you uh, one other thematic question in your in your work. You've talked about global entrepreneurship and also global citizenship. And uh, there's one theme and value that comes up all the time in Ashoka. I know you've heard Bill Drayton is a friend of yours and also a friend of ours. And um, 
obviously one of his big themes today is empathy and the way that we uh, promote helping people to uh, experience empathy and learn about empathy. And I've heard you, you know, talk and, and, and write about uh, the role of empathy in, in um, entrepreneurship and in global citizenship. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, we when uh, the, the global citizenship uh, is is a key element of of really the capacity to to be effective on a global scale, and but global citizenship is a, is a tough and, and difficult concept to to understand. In fact, um, some people react very strongly against it. Um, as we were exploring the, the you know the, the investigating the notion of global, uh, uh, global citizenship, even even politically, uh, some people react negatively against it. There there will be uh, you know very well known political leaders who would say that um, uh, global citizenship is in a way is a threat to to patriotism to yeah. national citizenship and that uh, you cannot be both and that your allegiance is to is to uh, exclusively to your nation and that anything else uh, may be a threat to, uh, to to national interest and so forth it it took us <laughs> interestingly a conversation a day long visit with the dalai lama uh, of of all people uh, to help us understand what the the true meaning of of global citizenship is and and i think if, if following in a way, uh, the Dalai Lama's description is this idea, first of all, in understanding of the mutual dependencies, this, this notion that every individual city, region, country in the world, our, our prosperity and well-being depends on the prosperity and well-being of others, of other people, cities, regions, countries, that we're not isolated entities that are, that are if you will, our, our, our well-beings are, are interconnected. I cannot be I cannot do well if you don't do well. Uh, China cannot do well if the U.S. doesn't do well, and the other way around, right? And then the second uh, belief is the sense that well, if if you if you believe the first, if you believe that my well-being depends on yours, then it is very rational that I become sensitive to, empathetic with, compassionate about your own interests, uh, because I cannot do well if you don't do well. And, and those basically are the tenets of global citizenship. Obviously, there are people who can be successful on the international arena and go to another country and, and do harm and exploit people in that country for the benefit of people back home, whether it's shareholders or clients or a combination. But normally, those people are not going to last very long. And the, the examples of, of leaders who we've seen create real long-lasting value, they approach international business and, and initiatives with a citizenship approach in understanding that if I'm going to come manufacture something in Southeast Asia, now I'm part of this community, and I have a responsibility towards creating value here, not just, not just at, at home. That notion of empathy is, is intimately related to this, is that, is that notion of, of, of understanding the world from your standpoint of understanding how the world feels, of understanding your, your needs, your desires, of understanding um, uh, your, your, your pains and be responsive, uh, responsive to them. So, so I think through, through our different journeys, we end up, ended up in a, in a place uh, that, that is not very different from, uh, from, from Bill's understanding of, of, uh, of empathy.
That was very helpful. Thank you. I, I think that one of the things you said about uh, the fear of the other, and I, and I think this runs through a lot of our ideas about competition versus collaboration. And I think one of the powerful I, things about empathy and um, is, is recognizing that, that caring for others and service and looking after the welfare of others is actually good business and that it's not that some of those things that we associate with being soft actually lead us to prosperity. That is captured in, in what you just said. We're coming to the end of our time, and many of the listeners of this podcast are students who are studying entrepreneurship and particularly social entrepreneurship. And uh, you uh, uh, having uh, some gray hairs and, and some uh, many wonderful leadership experiences now over many years, I would love it if you could just offer some words of wisdom for people who are beginning their journey, you know, people who are starting out and uh, comment a little bit on what it is that sustains you, your passion and your work um, through the hard places, because it's not always, uh, it's not always uh, fun and a big success. A lot of times that success is built out of very, very hard, painstaking work and meeting challenges. Can you give us some inspiration on that? Yeah. Well, this is what I, what I try to do, but also what I have observed people who I, who I admire and have sort of uh, studied uh, what I see them do, which is, you know, I, I don't think the most successful entrepreneurs um, are, are driven uh, just by sort of a, a bottom line, and I, whether it's social entrepreneurship clearly, but even in business entrepreneurship, the most successful entrepreneurs are driven by by an idea that they believe very very strongly about, and and that is important. First of all, to to overcome all the difficulties that in any entrepreneurial enterprise and even in our own career journeys are going to be absolutely unavoidable. Uh, but it, it is also the the only uh, sort of unexhaustible. Uh, source of energy and, and that, that that can keep you going. Uh, if you think about, you know, you you can watch tapes and interviews with with the Google guys, for example, or or with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, or uh, you you pick it. You you sort of take any any entrepreneur, and and what you will realize is not that they don't they don't understand uh, the importance of. Of, uh, of financial performance, and they don't understand the importance of of having good valuation in the stock market. But that's not the driver. The driver is, uh, you know, to organize the world's information and and make it available to people, or to or to create you know the social connections that can enrich people's lives, or uh, who knows what, whatever it is that that drives their passion. And that's the that is the one thing that can keep you going when things don't go the way the way you you want it i think um sometimes the 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 fear that i have is that um sometimes we we sort of confuse means with ends that some people who approach entrepreneurship just just thinking of sort of uh, uh of personal rewards whether they're monetary rewards or or sort of uh, recognition rewards if you will those are not they don't have the same power to 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 inspire you to energize you to keep you going where things are going are not going the way you want as 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 a real idea as a real vision as a real uh sense of of making a difference uh for the better 
That's a very wise counsel. I think uh, the way I heard it said once is that if you find something that you really believe is worth failing at, then you're more likely to succeed at it. You know, yeah, that's and, brilliant, actually. <laughs> yeah. So um, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I would like to help our listeners if they want to find the book. I know it's available on Amazon. I've also heard that uh, you a good place to f- get the book if they want to get it is beingglobalbook.com. And uh, so we'll send our listeners there. Is there anywhere else they should go to learn about uh, you and your work and, and your thoughts? I know that you also have a blog on the George Mason website, so we can put up a link to that. Um, but uh, anything else, any place else they should go? No, those are those are great. I am. Uh, um, yeah, the book is available in uh, all the regular distributors, and uh, uh, and I I do post my thoughts on my blog, and and also active on uh, on on Twitter, which is always a great a great way to engage in conversations with people who share similar similar thoughts. So any way in which uh, people want to engage in a conversation, I'm I'm always there, and uh, and thank you, thank you for for having me, thank you for the. Really terrific conversation. Thank you, Angel. On behalf of our producers and sponsors, Arch Street Press, Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our work, visit us at archstreetpress.org.